Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, I'm Michelle Ward. As a mom, I've looked my children in the eyes with love and hoped I can lead them toward a bright, wonderful future. But as a neurocriminologist who's been studying violent crime for the last 20 years, I've also quietly hoped that, at the very least, I'm not raising a future serial killer. And if you can relate to that taboo thought, congratulations, you've just found your new favorite podcast. This is How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. So today I'm talking with my dear friend Amy, who was my neighbor, and we kind of raised our little kids together for a while. They were not the same age, but close enough that they played together a lot. And um, Amy has two kids. Do you know what we're going to be talking about today, Amy? No, only that it's going to probably make me cry. It might make you cry. Thank you for coming. I love being here. Oh, you're the best. Um, Have you ever wondered if either of your kids might become a serial killer? (laughs) The real answer is no, but you know, there have been moments, <laughs> tough moments. <laughs> we were just in the car talking about those tough moments. Her kids are not going to be serial killers, but parenting's no joke. No. I'm going to just go yeah. straight for the situation. And Dive in. You need to brace yourself. On November 5th, 2001, a body was found in Keystone State Park in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. And the description of that body was a man in his early 30s wearing scrubs and having five bullet wounds. That body is that of Andrew Bagby, but the description does not even begin to describe who this man was, what he meant to everybody, and how he meant the absolute world to his parents. If you have seen the documentary, Dear Zachary, then you know that this is going to be the most heartbreaking story in the world. Have you seen it? Mm -mm. Okay. Well, if the listeners have, have seen it, they know what they're in for. I usually don't spend a bunch of time on the crime itself because I want to get into how to prevent it, what happened. But in this case, it really requires it. And to do that, I have to go back to the beginning. And the story begins with Andrew Bagby's parents, David and Kate Bagby. I was just about to give birth to my first 
baby to Charlotte, and the doctor told me that she was too thin. The fetus was too small, which is funny now because she has the tiniest little waist, and that's all it was. But <laughs> So back then, what that was 10 years ago, they said, lie on your left side for three hours a day to release pressure off of some vessel on your right side so that the baby gets more nutrients and grows. And now they know that that doesn't work. But at the time, I got three hours of watching The Office and documentaries, and I would run out. So I'm always clicking on new ones, and I just stumbled upon this. If you've seen it, you'll know. If you haven't seen it and you're listening to this episode, I recommend you do see it. And I have searched high and low for what could have been done to prevent not necessarily this crime, but any crime similar to it. And I do this for the Bagbies. They were the warmest people I've ever talked to in my entire life, and I'll, I'll tell you about that conversation later. The documentary has loads of people close to the Bagby family, and they describe them really well. Kate and David Bagby met on a blind date and married quickly. And Kate Bagby is this darling woman. She's so charming. She has a British accent, and she just exudes warmth and kindness and helpfulness. In fact, she's an OBGYN nurse practitioner. And then David Bagby, her perfect counterpart, is this engineer. And he's described in ways that make him sound like the most earnest and solid man the dad like you'd go to with all the problems and he's going to give you really sound advice and the dad we all kind of wanted. Kate and David tried for years and years to start a family and they were exploring adoption when they got pregnant with Andrew. Andrew was born September 25th, 1973. And in every photo that they show in the documentary, Dear Zachary, it's, it's, like, it's like a movie that pictures themselves. Kate and David are just loving on this little boy. Like he was just their... He was all that mattered. Everything else fell away into a distant hum. I'm not sure it, I'm not sure another child has ever been more wanted or loved. Then Andrew, who's Andrew? So, you know, as a baby, he was just this like cute, chubby little thing. And then he, as he grew, he became the perfect combination of his parents. And he had droves of people who adored him. They described him as honest and loyal, kind, brilliant, and funny. And he never wore pants. He only wore shorts. <laughs> I suspect because his legs were a little short. You know, it's kind of hard to think. He was really, really a good-looking, cute guy. He had intense determination, and that determination was to become a doctor. And that might have been born from his relationship with his mom. She jokes in the documentary that they would talk to each other about venereal disease, much to the chagrin of other people <laughs> listening. Anyway, Andrew had so many friends from every age of his life, and they all universally loved him and his parents. His friends said that they all grew up under the Bagby roof to some extent or another. And in a way, the Bagbys had raised each one of them. I had friends like that growing up. Their parents felt like my own. And Amy and I both grew up in the same place. We didn't know each other because I'm a bit older, but this town kind of has that generational. Everyone stays. Andrew did not get into medical school during his first round of applications, and he was very disappointed. So his mom brought home a brochure about a medical school in Newfoundland, Canada. He applied and he was accepted. Enter... Shirley Turner. While in medical school, Andrew meets and begins dating Shirley Turner. She's 40 and he's 28. She has three kids by different dads. She's twice divorced. She is a lot. His friends say they barely knew anything about her when she showed up and just never freaking left. She was like that stage five Klingon by all accounts. And Andrew's friends use these words to describe her. They say she was sexually inappropriate in most conversations, obsessive, controlling. She even called Andrew's ex-fiance continuously and would discuss their sex life with her. By all accounts, she was super off-putting and odd. Now, I've had the benefit of watching the documentary and, and seeing video of her, and it's like, 
She's a tiny little thing. She looks harmless, but she looks as annoying as all hell. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, go away. So why would this well-loved, super stable guy from this great home with great friends date this train wreck? Well, remember the ex-fiance I just mentioned? He had been left heartbroken by that breakup. She was a wonderful woman. All of his friends and family loved him. He, she's all over the documentary. She's, I could see exactly why he was heartbroken losing her. So his friends believe that that breakup left him vulnerable to somebody like Shirley, because Shirley's just love bombing him, which we'll learn that that's something that happens with this type. So his self-esteem was a bit damaged, and the attention Shirley was giving him probably felt good at the time. In 2000, Andrew started a surgical residency in Syracuse, New York, and he hated it. He thought he wanted to be a surgeon, but that can happen, right? Like you think you want to be something and then you get there and you're like, holy cow, this sucks. Meanwhile, Shirley started practicing in Iowa. So Andrew's internship is super miserable, but Shirley was frequently visiting him and everyone was saying that was probably a distraction, the only distraction he had from his miserable day-to-day existence. So eventually he, I think after a year, he left the surgical residency and he started a new residency in a small family practice in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. And he loved it. He felt he had found his calling. I'm going to be the small town doctor. This is where I belong. And he was super happy. And he was beaming with pride that he had found himself in this path. And he had this newfound clarity that it was time to finally break up with Shirley. He was pretty sure that she was not a healthy partner. He could see what everybody else could see. But I think he was just kind of, you know, it's attrition, right? It's, it's, I don't know, like body in motion stays in motion. You're just kind of going with it. But now he's like, I'm stoked. I'm happy. You're out. The first step he took to distance himself from her was to not invite her to his best friend's wedding. And of course, she flipped out. Now, remember that moment because that becomes very important later. On the day of the wedding, she called incessantly over and over and over again. People were describing like every five minutes he's looking at his phone going, oh my God, it's her again. It's her again. She's texting now. She left over 30 messages. And everyone's like, you're being stalked. This is super weird. But here comes a twist. There was another wedding shortly after that wedding, but those invitations had come in the mail before this, these invitations. So he'd already invited her to that one. And by everybody's account, he could not be an asshole. It just was not in his DNA. So he honored that invitation. He brings her to the wedding. The videos of Shirley at this wedding are so creepy. She looks like that weird drunk aunt who you know, who's invited to every single wedding. She's dragging him out onto the dance floor and they're the only ones on the dance floor and he looks so uncomfortable. And she's she's got the moves like an SNL skit. Like her, it, it, the whole thing looked like the oh. beginning of an, yes, it's what you think. And you can see everyone watching them in the video and you can see Andrew's like, okay, just someone put me out of my misery. This is so horrifying. So right after this wedding in November of 2001, Andrew broke up with Shirley for good. So after the wedding, he takes her to the airport. He puts her on a plane from Pennsylvania to Iowa. But then she gets in her freaking car and drives through the night and ends up back on his doorstep at 5.30 in the morning. She literally drove 1,300 miles right through the night, right to his house. So he opens the door. Obviously, he's shocked. He lets her in and he tells her he has to go to work, but he'll meet her afterward. He goes, So he goes into work. He goes into the family practice where he's having his residency. And his colleague's like, dude, that is not normal business. Meet her in a public place. Andrew agrees he's going to meet her in a public place. And he also agrees to meet this colleague. He's really a friend after he meets with Shirley. Andrew doesn't show up to meet his friend after meeting with Shirley. And then the next day, Andrew didn't show up for his residency. They actually had a meeting in the morning. 
everybody in the department knew something was wrong. The same colleague, I believe his name was Clark, called and left a message for Andrew. And the rest of the staff is growing more and more concerned. And then on the news, they heard that a body had been found in scrubs in the park. It didn't take more than two seconds for his friends and colleagues to point the finger at Shirley. They knew it was her, but that didn't matter because she left a ton of evidence anyway. Shell casings and a live round from a gun she had just bought and bought ammunition from the CCI manufacturer. And she shot him five times in the face, the chest, back of the head, and two times in the buttocks. And then, of course, people saw an SUV that matched her, spotted at the scene at the same time. Police questioned her right away. I mean, she's back in Iowa. And the recordings are so bizarre. She's claiming that she was homesick on November 5th, tucked into her bed in Iowa. But as the investigation goes on, they tell her that there's been evidence that her cell phone pinged to towers all the way from Iowa to Andrew's house. And then even when she got home from then, she left a creepy voicemail on his answering machine. It was, hey, I haven't seen you in a couple days. Love you. Oh. She's a freaking idiot. So as investigators are like, okay, so that's neat that you say you were sick in bed, but your cell phone wasn't. Your cell phone was on its Fairly. way to, yeah, to Pennsylvania. And then your cell phone turned around and went all the way home again. She's like, oh, dang it. Okay, I screwed up. I didn't remember before, but now I remember I did go to Pennsylvania. And when I was there, I met him in the parking lot of um, the state park, and I gave him my gun. And then I left. I mean, she's really... I'm sorry. She's crazy and stupid. <laughs> so stupid. She's so fucking stupid. Anyway, she knows she's screwed. But here's the kicker. By the time they'd collected all of that information from those cell phone towers, it had taken two weeks. She has dual citizenship. So she's back in Canada. There were multiple memorials for Andrew Bagby in different states and even in England where his mom's from. And they were packed. But get this. Shirley actually shows up. She has the audacity to show up to the one in Newfoundland, Canada. Every person in that Frickin' memorial knew she killed him, and she shows up. She walks over to his ex-fiance, who everybody's consoling because she's this wonderful person who's probably feeling a little bad that she didn't marry Andrew because he would be alive. She walks up to this wonderful Heather woman and is like, oh, Andrew loved me so much more than he loved you. I, I can't with her. And I can deal with a lot of murderers, but I cannot with her. She just couldn't be any weirder. And watching the footage from these memorials is gut-wrenching. His best friend, the one who made the documentary, gets up and he says to David and Kate Bagby, you still have children. Shirley then holds a press conference. The little evil woman is not done yet. And she holds this press conference, does not require a press conference to tell the world that she is four months pregnant with Andrew's no. baby. Yeah. And she's not lying. She was pregnant with Andrew's baby. Andrew's parents, who were at the time living in Northern California, they leave everything. They dig into their savings and they move to Canada to fight for custody of their son's baby. And it takes months, almost a year. Canadian legal proceedings are like molasses. But of course, the entire province, this tiny province they were in, the entire province falls in love with Kate and David Bagby. They met friends immediately. They were welcomed into people's homes, like, of course, because they're magical. On July 18th, 2002, little Zachary was born. Shirley named him Zachary Andrew Turner. The Bagbys fought very hard to get access to Zachary, and eventually they were given one hour per week. It's, it, 
it's truly amazing to watch the moment they meet him because that, of course, is in the documentary. I don't know why there were cameras everywhere around these people, but there were. And they walk in and he is identical to Andrew's Aww. baby's pictures. The, the same darling little face. November 14th, 2002, a Canadian judge agrees that a well-instructed jury could likely find Shirley guilty. So based on that, she's to be incarcerated until her extradition back to the United States. This is the only good news you're going to hear out of this Canadian judicial system. She always seemed to know exactly when to turn nice. And so when she realized that the Bagbys were going to have Zachary while she was incarcerated, she turned it on and manipulated the hell out of them. They had to accept her calls no matter what. And every day she called and she forced them to do things, really creepy things for her. Like, would you print a picture of Andrew and me and put it in a frame in Zachary's room? She wants a picture of her and the, the child that, you know, their child that who she murdered to put into their house. The Bagbys had to bring Zachary to the prison each week. And it was two hours each way and horrible weather. And they did it because they're amazing people and that's what they do. And they didn't care. They were just elated to have little Zachary. From the outside, it almost looked like they had their son back. They described themselves as being like young and in their 20s again and having baby Andrew. Every single one of those millions of friends I described of Andrews flew out to meet Zachary. But then, as they say in the documentary, the unthinkable happened again. They let the bitch out of jail. The judge who let her out of jail said something like, well, we can get her, we can let her out. She's no threat because the person she wanted dead is already dead. That's the logic. This was the decision of one Gail Welsh. Remember her name because we're going to come back to her. The judge was besotted with Shirley. She's saying things like, oh, Dr. Turner, this and that. She asked Shirley to promise to behave herself, a murderer. And here's another kicker. Of the $70,000 bail, I think seventy dollars or $75,000 bail, Shirley's psychiatrist posted $65,000 of it. And then the court gave the baby back to her, his father's murderer. Here he was being raised lovingly by Andrew's parents. But Zachary goes back to the woman who abused and abandoned her first three kids and is accused of killing Zachary's father. Now the Bagbys have the difficult task of scheduling visits with Zachary. They had to beg for more contact. She was always saying no, canceling, demanded that a third party had to be present. And she always wanted to be the third party. So they would have to spend every minute that they had with Zachary with her usually. She had, they had to hang out with their son's murderer. And she tortured them. She made them jump through hoops. She called needing and demanding things constantly, diapers, clothes, money. Everyone around them said that they could never have handled it. But the Bagbys were so committed, principled, and in love with that baby that they did it. On July 18, 2003, Zachary turns one year old. And Shirley threw him a party at McDonald's. Of course, there is a ton of footage of this. Shirley was trying to control everything, putting Zachary on her lap, demanding he open presents. And he's one. He's like, I'm not having it. I'm not interested. And he kept running for his grandma, for Kate Bagby. He tended to always choose his grandma over Shirley. So what does that do? That infuriates Shirley. And she's like acting like a child and saying, fine, he loves you more. He loves you more than me. Bear in mind that she had a bunch of other children all over the place who lived with their fathers, and she did not care. She would say things like, children are more trouble than they're worth. But her interest in Zachary was more about show, more about trying to stay out of prison, and more about punishing Kate and David. It was about manipulation. August 18th, 2003, Kate and David come home to a note from the constable. Shirley and Zachary were missing. Everyone searched. Then they found something. The fucking bitch jumped off of the fishing dock with Zachary tied to her waist. 
The people who gave Bagby's this horrifying news Mm-mm. said what they saw next they'll never forget for the rest of their lives. The primal horror of the worst pain a human can feel. And the Bagby's have now felt it twice. If you met them, talk to them like I did, you'd think about them all the time. In July of 2003, right before Shirley killed herself and Zachary, she had met a guy at a bar. They went out twice, but then his friends sent him articles about her as a suspect in Andrew Bagby's murder, so he stopped seeing her. She left over 200 messages on his voicemail, including one saying she was pregnant, she wasn't, and that he needed to step up. The night she killed herself, she left a fake message on a friend's answering machine pretending to be at that man's house. Then she went to his house, left used tampons on his oh. lawn and photos of her and the baby in his in her car in an attempt to frame this innocent man for what she was about to do. She then took the baby to the ocean behind the man's home, took a prescription for Ativan and put some in Zachary's bottle. Then she jumped into the Atlantic Ocean. I want to be really clear about something right now. Shirley didn't kill Zachary because she thought she might lose her case. She killed Zachary to punish the Bagbys and to frame this innocent man. When Andrew had died, the Bagbys could not go into the crematorium with him. They just said, we, we were too devastated. We couldn't do it. And Kate Bagby never forgave herself for that. Mm-hmm. So she took Zachary right to the oven. Watching them cry about that broke me. They scattered Zachary's ashes where they had scattered Andrews in England and in St. Louis. First, I want to tell you about what the Bagbys have done since these horrible tragedies. They worked tirelessly to get laws changed in Canada, and they succeeded. Zachary's bill now makes it harder for people accused of violent crimes to get out on bail. And David Bagby also wrote a book called Dancing with the Devil, a memoir of murder and loss. And this outlines basically the gross failures in the... Canadian justice system. When I talked to David and I said, look, I can't, I want to like give you my baby. I can't get over this horror. He said, and I said, would you come on my show? I was doing a show about stalkers at the time. And he said, Michelle, my goal for the rest of my life is to talk about this with whoever will listen so that I can make as many changes as I can so that nobody has to ever go through this. Again, um, wow. I want to talk for a moment about the judges, and I don't normally do this, but I'm so pissed. I'm so pissed. I mean, that's a broken system. Yeah, and I can tell you're pissed. The judges who let her out were Justice Gail Welsh and Justice David Russell, and I have something to say to them. There was absolutely nothing about the law that required you to let Shirley Turner out on bail. You had the authority to keep an alleged premeditated murderer incarcerated while she awaited trial but you didn't because you were impressed by her and her credentials. You allowed your personal proclivities to cloud your judgment, and you assumed that because she was a doctor and had to put in the same effort and commitment that you did to a higher education, that she was good and she was like you. I personally feel you're not qualified to wear those robes and those collars anymore. And as a litigation consultant, which is my side hustle, I've been in front of hundreds of judges and none were as obtuse as you. This baby's death is on you too, and the least you could do is try to champion the changes that David Bagby is trying to make in your own backwards-ass judicial system. This case has haunted me for more than a decade, and I will feature them, the Bagbys, at every chance I get. And if I can get someone else to be upset about these laws, then great. 
Um, how you feeling, Amy? I mean, that's much worse than I thought it was going to be. So, I mean, that's demented. Mm-hmm. I mean, the hearing about his parents reminds me sort of of my childhood, my, how my parents were. And I mean, as a parent myself, I loss of a child is unfathomable. And then to have it, not only that loss, but hearing about the their grandchild, Zachary, and then to just the fact that the grandmother had guilt and then took the, him directly to the crematorium. It's just... It's too much. I mean, it's the depth of tragedy is just so much. I mean, one of the saddest stories I've ever heard. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many people are experiencing burnout without even knowing it. Symptoms can include lack of motivation, feeling helpless or trapped, detachment, fatigue, and a bunch of other things that you wouldn't necessarily associate with burnout. I remember when my kids were really young and I was working, but still trying to keep the pace of all my friendships, relationships, workout routines, I started feeling like nothing was bringing me fun. I didn't find the pleasure in the activities that normally were the highlights of my day. I didn't recognize it as burnout. We associate burnout with work, but it is not always the only cause. Any of our roles in life can lead us to feeling burned out. And BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. Talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life. And really, just having somebody with an outside perspective looking at your life is priceless. We can't always see the forest for the trees, so that perspective is really helpful. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. How Not to Raise a Serial Killer listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash HowNot. That's BetterHelp.com slash HowNot. I I knew nothing about this prior. I've never watch documentary so i chose you for this because you were such an empath and you're so sweet i actually don't know if you should watch the documentary because it's way worse than what i described i can't fathom it it's it's horrifying when they flew out to go get andrew's body after he was murdered they said that their plan was to collect their son and then to kill themselves i mean and i and that to me doesn't sound psychotic like that i i can relate to that instinct as a parent because you can't understand the love that you have for your kids until you become a parent. I mean, it is next level. And that, I mean, the fact that they had to coexist with this woman who was clearly deranged in order to be a part of this child's life. I mean, I, and knowing that this person had killed their son, I mean, I cannot, I cannot imagine. And the fact that the baby wasn't taken away from her permanently, I mean, that's beyond. That system sounds so archaic. I mean, I don't even understand. I don't work with Canadian judicial system at all, but I just can't believe that that is a thing. Like, that was allowed. Did she literally tell her to be on her best behavior? Yeah, to promise you'll behave. I mean, it's... it. I try not to put blame on any one person or anyone slipping through the cracks in the system, but had they made different choices, no, they could never have prevented Andrew's death, but they could have prevented Zachary's. Why was that woman ever allowed out of 
prison ever. Well, and this is, like, beyond slipping through the system. She literally was a murderer. Yeah. She should have just stayed in the system. You know, it's one thing if someone slips through the system who has, like, some sort of a psychological disorder where they're capable of murder and they're not, you know, caught young and they've, you know, they've been failed by the schools or whatever. This is literally a murderer who was released for not even for good behavior. No. Just because she, she, part of the reason she did the things that she did was because of her charm. Clearly she got, she could enter people's lives and manipulate them, but you shouldn't be able to be manipulated as a judge who has to, you know, right. I mean, it's ridiculous. Being a judge, you're supposed to take your own personal you know, biases. You're supposed to you're supposed to look at the evidence before you and make the best decision. And I just can't understand how a judge could look at this premeditated murder and she was the evidence was overwhelming and be like, oh, but she's a doctor and she killed her target, so she's she's all good now. This is about it might be a stupid question, but it, was there a jury? No, because it was just the extradition, and she was, okay. she's awaiting her trial in the United States. So this is all just about holding her until they send her back to the U.S. Okay, so she would have still gone on trial in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Okay, so she could have been put in jail, but in the interim, they returned her child to her. Yes. They could have just let her out on bail and not giving her the baby back, too. They put her in control of, Mm -hmm. I mean. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they feel like shit. And if they don't, I think they should. Sorry, God, I'm not gonna, people aren't gonna like when I do that, but I'm mad. No, I mean, I I don't disagree with you. I mean, she, I I feel like they should lose their ability to. What, would it be disrobed? <laughs> I mean, I was gonna say disrobed, but I didn't know. What would that was, be? I don't know. <laughs> disrobe. Disrobe now. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, probably not that. I don't know if we'd wanna see them naked. So, Let's talk a little bit about why Shirley Turner was a murderer. This will be fun. The hell was wrong with that freaking woman? Um, As always, I am not diagnosing anyone. I am just calling it like I see it from where I sit. I've obviously never met Shirley, never will meet Shirley, but... I would like to say that Shirley had a horrible, rare set of risk factors that placed her on this tragic trajectory of murder, but I cannot. Because Shirley Turner was someone with a cluster B personality disorder, and they're everywhere. And Shirley's particular flavor was borderline personality disorder. That name is the worst because it always confuses people. It it originally meant the psychologist thought that these people border on um, between psychosis and neurosis, but that has that they should rename this disorder. It's a tough one for people to understand, but you really, really, really need to understand it. In fact, they should teach it to you in high school. Because I promise you, you either have been or will be or are being manipulated by one right now. Borderlines are everywhere. And they're not horrible, but they can be. And it's why it's important to recognize them. The technical descriptions of it never seem to drum up the vision that allows people to see who they are. Case in point, I was in my 30s and had 9,000 degrees in psychology before I recognized my mom was a borderline. And I didn't even recognize it. Two psychologists told me. That my mom, well, psychologist and Dr. Drew, like, hey, you know your mom's borderline, right? Yeah. Recently, however, I saw Dr. Shannon Curry's description of it on the um, Depp. Yeah, Johnny Depp. Yeah, the Johnny Depp. Really sad that I know exactly. I didn't even skip a beat. I know exactly. The Depp heard trial. And the first thing I did was jump on my teeny tiny social media account to tell people to watch Dr. Curry. I mean, that's the thing that I think is fascinating is because I I am super lame and have been following the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. It's like, like it's my job. Yeah. And- 
like hearing about this and the suggestion that she is borderline, I think is, it, it makes you watch it from a different perspective. But then of course, I'm also like, I always like to, you know, I, I never want to assume anything about anybody. So I'm just, I also am like, okay, what if she's not? And she's telling the truth. You mm-hmm. know, it's like, it's a very odd, tangled. And that could be true. Like, that's the other thing is like, what if she's, what if she's not the bad guy in this? I I don't know. I keep watching her. I'm like, oh girl, like I wish I'd witness prepped you for this trial because you were going down. Like well, the, you, you look she, like you're acting. So the biggest argument I found against her when I was watching was the fact that she likes to mimic what he wears the day before. And I think it's absolutely fascinating. And is that a part of the borderline? Like, is that something that they do? Mirroring. Borderlines feel empty inside and they're not sure about their identity. So they tend to mirror people. That is a real thing. And it's one of the reasons they, and they love bomb, by the way, when you first get in a relationship with a with a borderline, not only are they mirroring your beliefs, the way you dress, your style, your music, they're love bombing you. They are coming out with, I've never felt this way before, right away. And they ramp up the trajectory of the relationship, the pace of it, to lock you down. So her wearing what Johnny Depp wears is is a thing. It's a thing. That is, I mean, I would think that her journeys would be like, okay, Maybe wear the same outfit, but don't put like the B pin on. Did you see that one? I'm like, I, that is so obvious. It's insane. They must and not have a jury consultant. That is, so, yeah. So I mean, I feel, I feel like that's like a clear mark. Yeah. Again, I mean, an argument on behalf of this might part of this might be mental illness. Although I don't think he's completely innocent. It doesn't seem like um, he's got a he's got a thing or two. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and people are like, wow, everyone's pro Johnny Depp and anti-woman. I don't think that's it. I think people are now going, wait a minute. We have all had them in our lives. And I think this, I don't know how I feel about this trial being televised, or I didn't know how I felt about it. And now I'm, wow, everyone's getting an education in cluster B disorders. Everyone's going to be better off for it. Do you think part of the reason why she did this in the first place or wrote this article was, let's just say the argument that she's making this up. Do you think she did it to get the attention of the world? By this? Do you think that that was part of the draw to come public with this? Or do you think it was just merely to spite him because they separated? I think it's a it's twofold. I think she gets to get back at him. You know, your emotional toddler brain, the, that need is there and it's going to trump everything else. But then she also gets to be a victim on the world stage. If she is indeed a borderline, which it seems like there's agreement that she is, this is perfect for her. What she didn't expect is the rejection she's gonna she's getting, and it's going to trigger her abandonment fears. It's not going to be pretty. Oof. And if you need a jury consultant, my God, I mean, call one. Perfect, I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh I my mean, gosh, I would pay so much money to see you in the courtroom with them. No, 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 no. My favorite thing ever. Well, no, I would do it, but I just, yeah, I think that the, the this train wreck has left the station. Okay. Here's what the technical description looks like, and then I want to tell you about what it kind of looks like in people you know. It's a frantic effort to avoid real or imagined abandonment by friends and family. So it's they're constantly sabotaging because they think you're going to leave me. Unstable personal relationships, and they're so all their relationships are tumultuous: friends, coworkers, lovers, and they alternate between 
idealization and devaluation. So the second someone comes in their life, you're going to hear them be like, oh my God, I just met the most amazing person. I love her. She's the best person, the smartest person. And then eventually they'll be like, oh, I hated that girl. She ended up being a, a, a total, whatever, a criminal. Everything is black and white. And that particular um, effort that they make to, well, they don't make the effort, the particular behavior of idealizing somebody and then you know, devaluating, they go from hero to villain, is called splitting. They literally can, and the same people can go back up on the pedestal and then be torn right back off again. And if you know a borderline, you're like, wait a minute, that's true. Every boss they got was amazing at first and then horrible. Every boyfriend, every best friend, every roommate. I see Amy's face. (laughs) (laughs) Things are landing. (laughs) They have a very distorted and unstable self-image and that affects their moods and their values. And they tend to be impulsive, have impulsive behaviors that can have dangerous outcomes. So that can be excessive spending. It's usually a lot of unsafe sex, reckless driving, drug use, et cetera. They tend to self-harm or claim self-harm. So they might cut, but they're usually saying, I should just die. I want to just die. I'm going to kill myself to manipulate whoever it is who they want to stay. So they'll be like, I'm leaving you. Then she hates him and then she's fighting with her roommates and then everyone at work hates her and then she's just going to end it because she can't handle it. And you you go into their lives and you're like, wait a minute, this person has been through so much trauma and here's why. They've always been abused. Whether it's true or not, they have limitless stories of the trauma they've endured in their life. Often it is true. There's kernels of truth in it, but they're masters at exaggeration as well. And sometimes they'll create a new trauma if they're about to lose somebody. I just discovered I was raped as a child. I'm not saying these people haven't been abused and there's some evidence that early abuse does trigger borderline to happen. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Is that like, is it something that you're born with or it's something that... It's highly genetic. It's highly genetic, but there 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 is a belief that there is often a childhood trauma that triggers it. So that trauma wouldn't trigger it in somebody without the genetic predisposition necessarily. But it is genetic. It runs in families. You can't miss it. So the problem with it is you don't know it until you've heard these descriptions. And then you're like, oh, boy, that makes sense. The root of all of it is a fear of abandonment. But they're so manipulative and controlling. And you feel like you can't leave because of everything they've gone through. You feel like you can't put up a boundary because of all the trauma this person has been through. You need to help them. You need to help them. But then, so you're their hero for a a hot minute, but then you become their villain. And you're like, what did I do? All I've ever done is try to help you. And you're left with the fog, the fear, obligation, and guilt. You can't leave this person. Amy's almost in tears. I think she's recognized (laughs) a borderline in her life. So is it more prevalent in women? Than in men. Yes. It looks a little different in men. It's far more prevalent in women. That might be because women seek help more than men do. That's interesting. But I'm going to tell you what it looks like in men too. In okay. women, what it looks like is they're the victim in every story. So they constantly have story of being abused or traumatized and they're the victim. Every breakup, they were the victim. Every time they've been fired, every fight with their mother, they are the victim, they are the victim, and or they're the hero of the story. That's something to think about when these people are in your orbit do they ever take blame? No, a borderline is allergic to blame. They're allergic to culpability. It is never their fault. They're always in a fight. There's always some sort of drama everywhere you look. 
But then they can make up with that person and that person becomes a hero again. And every situation is black and white. I was going to say, there's no, it doesn't seem like there's gray. There's no gray. Yeah. So every, it was, they had the best time of their lives or they had the worst time of their lives. Everything's in this, there, you're never going to hear like, look, I did this and this and this, which triggered this person to do this and this and this. No, it's that person's evil. And I have been victimized once again. Um, if they're not getting what they want, that's when they threaten self-harm, you know, or to, they're going to hurt themselves. They don't typically kill themselves. When they do, they do it, they threaten it all the time. But when they do, it's usually they've made an attempt to get it's, some it was attention. kind of by mistake or something. It's yeah. an accidental suicide. Okay. Yeah. Um, they've had lots of boyfriends, partners, husbands, um, and all of those are villains. So I had this show called Stalked Someone's Watching on Investigation Discovery. And when I was examining the stalkers, a large majority of them, of those who stalked their uh, previous lovers, were borderlines. They can they can become stalkers. And Shirley exhibits all of the horrifying. symptoms. Horrifying. <laughs> yeah, I know. And also, maybe we recognize a few symptoms in ourselves. <laughs> I'm like, huh, dancing dangerously close to leaving a lot of message like swingers. And here's the thing. It's super important that if you do recognize it in yourself, you can treat borderline personality disorder. But if you're allergic to criticism, then borderlines famously do not like to be treated. Because if you go to therapy, the therapy is going to be like, you have some work to do. You have borderline personality disorder. I do not. They start accusing the therapist of stuff. Some therapists will not deal with a borderline because they always get accused of molesting them or making advances because borderlines do that. Oh, it's just opening yourself up for mm -hmm. a lawsuit. I have met many therapists who are incredible with borderlines, but the lawsuits come up. And um, if a borderline does recognize and want healthy relationships and identifies this in themselves, they can be helped. But you just- Is it possible though? I mean, how, like- It can uh, improve. It can. It okay. can improve. I was just like, what statistically, do you know like how many borderline people are actually able to seek help and be successful at it? I want to tell you about a brand new audiobook by Jen Silverman. Rachel Brosnahan leads an all-star cast in The Miranda Obsession, an enthralling and voyeuristic new Audible original. Inspired by a true Hollywood story set in the 1980s where one mysterious woman developed relationships with household names, all through conversations over the phone. Billy Joel, screenwriter Buck Henry, filmmaker Paul Schrader, and record executive Richard Perry are just some of the men who fell under her spell. A fascinating look at how far some of us will go to make a connection with each other. Also starring Milo Ventimiglia and Josh Groban. Listen on Audible at audible.com slash the Miranda Obsession. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I have never known a borderline in my life 
stay in therapy. And my therapist friends will talk about having one or two who've been there for a year or two years. It's not something they do well. But I'll tell you a little bit about the treatments that are available and why this story is on this podcast. Okay. Because there is something that we could do. And um, if we could prevent the Bagbys of the world ever having to deal with one time would be enough for me to jump. But oh. they went through it twice. So we're going to, I will do, I'll do 200 episodes and bore the shit out of everybody if I have to, if we stop one person, one borderline from, for, you know, committing murder. So Shirley, as we know, exhibits every symptom I just described. She had stalked three people. Before Andrew, in 1996, she was dating a man who broke up with her because she showed her ugly. And she stalked him and then physically attacked him. He, she showed up on his doorstep in his black dress and she attacked him and that was bad. The police were involved. Then there was Andrew, who she obviously stalked and killed. And finally, there was the man that she tried to pin that murder, her murder-suicide on. She stalked all three of those people. Usually, stalkers are not homicidal. Usually, borderlines are not homicidal. But when they are, they say things like, if I can't have them, no one can, or that their own existence is threatened if their relationship ends. So if if the relationship ends, they may as well die and and kill or kill the partner. So then they can't be left because the partner's dead. This is the scariest person on the earth to date. They they can be. They rarely kill, but when they decide to kill, you're not stopping them. Experts call borderline personality disorder a biosocial disorder, meaning that it starts with a biological or temperamental in- inclination. And it's exasperated by the social environment, like a you know early sexual abuse or other trauma. I mentioned that. I mentioned also that it's highly genetic and how it can be triggered by the trauma. Here's some good news. It can now be diagnosed in teenagers and suspected and followed in children. You're not gonna, your kid's not gonna get a diagnosis, but your teenager can. But if it's suspected, they can follow them. And here's why that's such great news. First, anything handled in childhood is going to have a better outcome than if treated solely in adulthood. The brain is young enough to unlearn when you're a kid. Plus, the parents have control. The parents can drag them to therapy. And borderlines are famously resistant to therapy. But if they're under... They can be trained. They can be trained. If nothing is ever your fault, you're never going to seek help. You don't want the criticism. But secondly, individuals who show borderline features before the age of 19 have the worst outcome. So that's another reason to intervene early. And now they used to not. They used to just steer away from any diagnosis until you were an adult. They're recognizing that that doesn't help. It's helpful. Even stigma be damned. It's better to get the help. Professionals, again, won't diagnose the child until he or she is a teenager, but that doesn't mean that they can't be receiving treatments from an early age. And the beauty of the treatments for borderline personality disorder is they do no harm. They're not medication, well, they can use medication, but there's all these interventions beforehand that even if your kid isn't a borderline, you can be doing it and it's all just really good therapy anyway. Um, Before I go into the therapies, you had asked about what borderline looks like in men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still this emptiness inside, this fear of abandonment, but you see a lot of explosive rage, violence. Again, the other things are exactly the same, but you see a lot more of the... um, explosive personality. You might know a few. They look like really angry narcissists, um, but they're so afraid you'll leave them. Um, and they can they can be, you know, really dangerous too. It's like this was my first boyfriend. This Amy's first boyfriend. <laughs> he was cute. Um, I saw a picture. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, he was I, cute. I got yeah. a picture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, do they, does this get confused? This is also maybe not 
a very smart question, but obviously I'm not a doctor or a psychologist. Does this get confused with uh, bipolar disorder? That's my net. You're you're a genius. Yes, <laughs> and that's one of the biggest problems because then they start getting medicated. They they get on mood stabilizers and antidepressants, which are great for borderlines too. It treats the symptoms. But what happens is they never because they've been slapped with the bipolar di- diagnosis, they never get treated for borderline. Yeah, which seems like it's more extreme. I, it can be. It, it's very similar. The distinction is going to be because you know bipolars can have bi- people who suffer from bipolar disorder can have a lot of tumultuous relationships and and addictions and all of that too. You get the highs, but then you get the depression. Yeah, they have the pull. Um, and borderlines can be depressed too. But the difference is that everyone's a hero or a villain. Every relationship is tumultuous. Every they're always the abandonment. This fear of abandonment is unique to borderline. Plus this, I'm going to kill myself business. Okay. That's that's how you can tell the difference. And they don't like, they don't get those massive um, depressive episodes. Thus far, the best and most effective treatment for borderline personality disorder was actually developed for it is called DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy. And it means therapy work that's working, but dealing with two things at once. It's accepting the feelings that the borderline is having, accepting their own feelings, mindfulness, and learning to use thinking to change the feeling. And that's the CBD part, the cognitive behavioral therapy part. So basically, you get the person to say, I'm doing the best I can on one hand, and I need to do better. And that's the dialectical truth. This approach was developed by Marsha Linehan or Linehan. I don't know how to say it correctly. She was a psychology researcher at the University of Washington, and she defines dialectical as a synthesis or integration of opposites. DBT was designed to help people increase their emotional and cognitive regulation by learning about the triggers that lead to reactive states and also helping them to assess coping skills, which coping skills to apply in the sequence of events, thoughts, and feelings and behaviors to help these undesired reactions. You talked about bipolar mood stabilizers and antidepressants are often used, but they can have both good and bad outcomes, like I said. So that's another that's another route people go with. Um, my mom was on an antidepressant and I saw some improvement with her. My mom was not Shirley Turner. My mom was a wonderful person and it was not her fault that she had borderline. There's not a damn thing you can do about it if you don't know you have it. No, and I'm sure there's a spectrum of extreme, mm-hmm. you know, how extreme you go. I mean, she could be pretty extreme. <laughs> she did in her white fur throw my sister and I into the car to drive down to our boat that was called the Splash of Class. Oh the irony <laughs> to find our dad with his mistress. Like she did a lot of borderline-y things, but it was but because- But in fairness, that would make anyone a little nutty. Dad, dad was with a woman on the boat. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. thought. You know, it's they do really extreme emotional stuff and, and their needs will trump those of their children. They can be incredibly loving parents. Interesting. They can, because it's like this little extension of themselves and they love it and they're never going to be abandoned by it. And they can, once the child gets a little older and has its own personality and can abandon you, borderlines are pretty tough parents. But for babies and young kids, they're, they can be the warmest parents you know. They're not short on love. It's just that their needs trumps the needs of their child. So the children can become collateral damage if that's what the borderline needs. In this case, Shirley Turner did that exact same thing to Zachary. Um, but I want to say that because, I mean, I felt safer. And I felt like my mom loved me more than other moms loved their children. But there was a lot of instability and, un- and unsafe feelings in the house as I got older. And everything was dictated on the mood. So if they're fighting with their boyfriend, you're going to get it. 
you know, it's all, they can't compartmentalize at all. So whatever is happening emotionally for them is what's happening emotionally for everyone around them. You, psychologists end up treating the people around the borderline since the borderline won't be treated herself. Well, and you said they also don't really live in a state of gray area. No. Is it most often like an intervention type thing that makes a borderline seek help or is it or is it like it's probably not often initiated by the person? No. Usually it's a boundary someone else has put up, like you seek help or I'm leaving. Yeah. And then if they end up with a therapist who honors their trauma, and then it's another audience for them to talk about their abuse and trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if the therapist then starts turning and is like, okay, well, what what is your participation in this or doesn't recognize their borderline, then that therapist, be- first the therapist is a hero, and then that therapist is a bad therapist and should have her license removed because, yeah, they get demonized. They get demonized pretty quickly. That's usually the cycle. There are borderlines who recognize their borderline tendencies. They go to therapy and they get better. They get better just hard to get them in. And that's why doing it early. If you have a child who's talking about feeling empty inside, who has giant emotions, I'm not saying that kid's going to be borderline, but it can't hurt to do dialectical behavioral therapy I mentioned and what I'm about to mention next, which gets me very, very excited, especially since it's so hard with kids. And, And you don't know, it's the prognosis isn't great with borderlines, but they're saying more and more are using these interventions and getting help because mental illness is becoming less stigmatized. But if you have them in your home, you can make them go to the therapy and guess what else you can do. A study in the United States showed, they took a randomized group of borderlines and they gave them fatty acid EPA for two months. And then the other group got nothing. They got the placebo. And it showed a significant reduction in aggression from the borderlines. It helped. Really? It was a study by Zanarini and Frankenberg in 2003. Omega-3 fatty acid treatment of women with borderline personality disorder, a double-blind placebo-controlled pilot study, American Journal of Psychiatry. That's huge. That's a biological intervention that helps. Again, I've said it on- It's an easy supplement. We take that. My husband and I take that every day. Okay. Give it to your kids. Give the kid version to them. On every single episode I mention feeding fish two to three times a week to your kids or giving them omega-3 supplements. Remember when you were pregnant, they made you do it? Yeah. What they didn't realize is it also, it helps with not just brain development, making you smart. It helps with all of this. It's It helps the neurons grow. It helps them develop. It, it's it's an incredible and very easy thing to do. Now, kids have emotional swings. Kids look like little borderlines. <laughs> yeah. But you, they describe things about being, not feeling loved, being abandoned. They talk about feeling empty. They don't, they, they, they don't identify with themselves. And borderlines do that. Borderlines dissociate. They can they can dissociate from themselves. And they describe this emptiness. If you hear it in your kid, it's not going to hurt. Give them the damn omega-3s. Get them into therapy. Gently suggest perhaps there's a borderline in your family. Like I'm super, I'm highly aware of it because I know how genetic it is. And my mom was very textbook borderline. So I look for, you know, in myself, in my kids, it doesn't yeah. hurt. It doesn't hurt. I'm not saying, you know, some of these therapies that, that are even given to children medications, um, you know, certain, I mean, then the the good ones like biofeedback don't harm, but some of them you're resistant to start in childhood. None of these are harmful. And even if you're like, I don't know if my kid's a borderline, but I'm going to just start dialectical behavioral therapy just in case because her grandma was, no problem. I mean, the fact that it's so prevalent and that there are resources for people, there are disorders that become trendy where they're more studied or they're more spoken about and they're more socially accepted. And I think the more, you know, normalizing this type of thing will make people address it younger and younger. And, you know, 
allow you to avoid some of the, sounds like, you know, the ways that this can play out. I mean, obviously not all borderline people can commit murder, but they can do a lot of damaging other things mm-hmm. to those in their periphery. So it's um, it's emotional terrorism when yeah. you are in a close relationship with a borderline. It feels like you cannot get out. The only way to deal with the borderline is to put up a boundary, but then the borderline is only talking about that boundary, and that's more trauma. It's fixating. Mm-hmm. That's more abuse. That's more people hurting the borderline because they put up a boundary. I told you recently about a friend that I kind of severed ties with. Mm-hmm. It's crazy hearing you describe this, and I, I'm not in the business of diagnosing, but it is almost like textbook. It's hard because you you want to be like you can have meaningful relationships you can do this but it's gonna it's gonna be really hard for you and but it's worth it yeah it's worth it the um the the guilt factor of severing a relationship with a borderline because they don't want you to leave they really love you they they do and they it hurts they don't want you to leave but the self preservation part is so key it's very hard if it's somebody you can't leave like a child a parent a sibling. Yes. You right. can't really leave that person. It becomes life-defining. Your your life is defined by your relationship with that person. And um, these are extremes, but you, you'll see it. You'll Maybe the borderline in your life doesn't have every single symptom. Maybe they haven't had 10,000 boyfriends or been married five times. But you'll see the pattern. And when, when they're upset, the self-harm threats or the cutting themselves or doing it. Yeah. The, I think it's the extremes, too, the the high highs with how they perceive people. It's either you're the hero or the the demon. It's But there's no in between. And the victim victim of every negative situation in the past and all of those things, I mean, I think it's fascinating. I have a person in my life who's just gotten out of a relationship with a borderline. And he says, why don't people teach us about personality disorders? I'm like, I, they do in abnormal psych classes. But why isn't it, why aren't you told what a narcissist looks like? You can still love a narcissist, but why aren't you told what a borderline looks like? Still love the borderline. Why aren't you told this? Because otherwise you're in this cycle of, oh my gosh, this person's been been so abused. I need to help them. But I'm now held hostage emotionally. And it's traumatizing. It's it's really hard to, to be in the vortex. When I feel like it's just as important for the people in the periphery of someone that has this to learn a skill set to address it and to be able to coexist in a relationship. I feel like it's just as important for the borderline person to, you know, have have the training on how to cope with what they have. But also, you know, in order to stay in a marriage, I would imagine that the person who they're married to would need to also have an understanding of how to navigate mm-hmm. the the waves. I guess. Absolutely. And start slip in some omega-3s in your wife's coffee. <laughs> yeah. I'm dead serious. You know, you and and go to see therapy or, yourself because yeah. it's real there's damage. And read the book Walking on Eggshells. It's an incredible book and it it I mean doesn't that drum up exactly it, I mean, say, yeah, I feel like the that visual is probably perfect for this. It's uh that book is really helpful. There are resources now that you're like oh my god there's a name for that then you really are empowered. And again, rarely are they homicidal. They can be very suicidal. But when a borderline is decided that the 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 person they want, if they leave them, if they're left by that person, then their life is no longer worth living, then they have the potential to become homicidal. 
Sometimes that's what murder suicides are. It's a control thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Murder. When every time I see a murder suicide, I'm like, eek. Is that a borderline? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. But if we know about these things, if we're talking about it, and if we're not afraid to help our children, I'm resistant. Every time one of my kids does something, I'm like, oh god, oh god, what is that? What, what am I going to do? But I'm like, you know what? Who cares? Just do it. Yeah. Just do it because you are the best person to begin helping your children. You're, you know, it, we get a lot of blame for things we we do to our kids, but really, I think what we don't do for them can be worse. Oh, hundred percent, hundred. And for borderlines, I don't know. It just seems like something like this type of thing you would need to seek therapy consistently mm-hmm. forever. Well, I guess. Also, all of us should be in therapy. I know. Kind I mean, I swear by therapy. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's just we should all kind of always be yeah. in therapy. No, that's like my number one re- piece of relationship advice to any of my friends is go to therapy with your husband. It's like it's can just preemptively mm-hmm. deal with stuff, which I think is what you're saying with kids. It's like there's no harm in doing things that can preemptively address some of these things. Yeah. And if, if your, your little kids. girl is super emotional and swinging all over the place and afraid of being left and says she feels empty inside, who cares? Dialectical behavioral therapy is not a big deal. And they do group. I don't know how they do it in children that young. They have modified it for teenagers. I know it's been modified for teenagers. But a 10-year-old little girl is basically a teenager. Um, I don't know. I'm not an expert in this. I've actually never even seen it done. But I'm imagining there is a therapist working with your child who would look into it for you and explore it with you to see what could be done. Right. Um, And they do it in group settings too. So as you mentioned, it's probably good for somebody with borderline to continue therapy. You're in with people like you, and that's liberating. Oh, totally. Because it's not, I mean, it's, it's something you can live with, it sounds like. Um, I mean, someone like Shirley Turner obviously isn't someone that like should be on the streets. But I mean, I think theoretically, if she had addressed it younger and had had a support system around her, I like to think that she wouldn't have done. But I don't know. Okay. Well, thank you, Amy, so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. I want you to come back again. Yeah, I would love to. I'm Dr. Michelle Ward. This has been How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. See you next week. How Not to Raise a Serial Killer is a Cloud 10 Media production, executive produced by me, Dr. Michelle Ward, and Sim Sarna. Our editor is Emily Crane. Our music was created by Josh Cook, with artwork provided by Brian Stefanik. Follow us on Instagram at How Not to Raise a Serial Killer and on TikTok and Twitter at Hentrask. That's at H-N-T-R-A-S-K. And if you'd like to share a story or ask a question, you can email us at hownottoraiseaserialkiller at gmail.com or call and leave a voicemail at 818-392-4403. If you like our show, do me a favor and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. After all, if more people know about the show, maybe fewer kids will turn into serial killers. Who knows? Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.